And today we are just so privileged to get to hear from Dr. Craig Hazen. He is the founder and director of the apologetics program at Biola University. He's traveled all around the world doing lectures on apologetics. He's written a number of articles and books. And in the movie theaters today, we see a lot of films about faith, and that stirs up a lot of questions. So we are so privileged to get to hear Craig talk about that today. And as he comes up, I'm going to pray for us and pray that our hearts are ready to receive what God has to say to us. God, thank you so much for being present in our lives. And thank you for not being a God who just demands praise, but you give us good reason to praise you. You give us good reasons to worship you. You actually make sense. And when we start to give you our hearts and when we start to give you our minds and we start to really interact with you in a way that's real, you, you start to use us in ways that we may not have ever thought possible. I pray that this morning you would get past maybe some of the barriers that we came in with, that we would let down our guard, that we would drop some of the issues that are plaguing our mind currently and we would just listen to what it is that you say to our hearts through your word and through Craig. And so I just pray that you speak through him. Thank you for this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Hey, thanks for having me here. This is really fun. you got a long way to go to match up to that first service, though, so we'll see. Let me take a look at you. You know, I might take a look at you and change my message, you know, depending on your needs. So you're a, you're a very good-looking bunch. Very nice. Hey, it is wonderful to be here. Before, before I get into the message, a quick commercial because I, I brought some stuff out there. I like the learning to continue. I am a professor after all. Uh, if you like what I'm talking about this morning, you might want to pick up a book called Five Sacred Crossings. It's actually a novel I wrote, which incorporates all the ideas that I'll be talking about this morning. Uh, uh, you know, I, I learned from Dan Brown, who wrote The Da Vinci Code, that if, if you write a fast-paced mystery story, you can stick a bunch of stuff and could actually be untrue, and uh, people will pay a lot of attention to it. So I decided to do that, in this, and in this case, put a bunch of true stuff about Christianity in the middle of a fast-paced mystery story. So uh, check that out. If you're not used to reading apologetics textbooks, this one might catch your fancy. Uh, and I will be mentioning uh, religions like Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and so on this morning. Uh, here's a great introduction to those movements if you've never really taken them very seriously. World Religions and Cults 101, that's on the table. And one last little gem that I brought from our department office. Uh, this is a debate on does God exist? Uh, by William Lane Craig, who's one of our professors and probably one of the finest Christian debaters on the planet, going up against Christopher Hitchens, who's clearly an incredibly clever atheist. And uh, people thought that Christopher Hitchens was going to be the first one to really uh, beat Bill Craig like a drum. Uh, that didn't happen. In fact, after the debate was over, the atheist blogs were just incensed. They were writing things like, oh my goodness, Christopher Hitchens did such a bad job. He was spanked like an errant school child in that debate. So, so I carry a box of these around in my trunk, you know, to, to give to skeptics and atheists and agnostics and so on. So check those things out. You look like a friendly bunch. That's a good thing. I don't go to friendly places very often. You know, I go to a lot of secular university campuses to give them talks on, you know, things like evidence for the resurrection or why Christianity is a standout among the world religions and so on. And uh, 
they can get really dicey. So it's nice to see some friendly faces like that. Oh, uh, speaking of college campuses, I was in a campus uh, in Olympia, Washington. Gosh, this must have been a year or two ago now. It seems like yesterday. But it was, it was incredibly memorable. Uh, I get this call in my Biola University office, and, and there's some guys in Olympia, Washington. And by the way, Washington State is thought to be the most unchurched state in the country. And Olympia, Washington, according to Washingtonians themselves, is like uh, you know, the, the, the haven for atheists and agnostics, you know. So if you go to a secular university campus in Olympia, Washington, you've presumably hit about spiritual rock bottom in America, you know. So I get this call from this campus. Uh, they're gonna, they want to bring me up to give a lecture. I go, oh, this sounds dicey. And it turns out it's sponsored by a Christian club on this campus. Well, how could they support a Christian club there? My goodness, you know. Now, turns out it wasn't much of a club. It was two guys, you know. <laughs> and they were business majors. And it, they discovered that if they start a club of any kind on campus, they get access to associated students' money. So, so they're walking around with fistfuls of cash, wondering what to do with it. And so uh, they thought, hey, let's, let's invite guys we like, you know, some authors and speakers uh, up to campus just to have lunch with us, you know. <laughs> so they said, you know, we're, we want you to give a small talk. Um, we're going to fly you up here. And honestly, we don't know how many people are going to come. It might just be my friend and I, you know having sandwiches with you. I said, fine. It sounds like a lot of fun. So I went up there. They picked me up at the airport, SeaTac up there. And then they, they're rushing me down Interstate 5 to Olympia. It's a lunchtime event. We're a little bit behind schedule. I remember they got off the freeway and whipped into a parking lot and rushed me into a building. We go through some doors and something on a wall over here catches my eye. It's, it's a poster about yay big. And, and the whole thing is my face, you know. And, and, and there are flames under my face. And, and the title of the event is Come Barbecue the Christian. So I'm trying to get oriented towards this little new, you know, eventuality. And, and at the very moment I'm looking at this poster, some guy walks by with a wheelbarrow and it's filled with barbecued chicken wings from the best barbecue place in town there was a whole theme here you see uh and the smell was just wafting through the building and people were like you know like zombies coming out of their office heading towards the smell and they were just gathering in this lecture hall and it was jammed i walk around the corner and into this into this hall and there were undergrads and grad students and people in white lab coats and janitors and people's moms there i mean it was like a great event i mean can you imagine a better lunchtime thing when uh, you get to watch a Christian be dismembered, and then you get to celebrate by eating wings, you know. Huh. So, uh, a little shock, but that's all right. Um, so the, the organizers, they, they get in front of the group, and they hadn't really thought all this through. They gave the ground rules, and they, were, uh, they weren't particularly complex. It's like, all right, here's, here it is. You ask questions for an hour, and you get the wings. There it is. And they, they put me on. I go, so I, I gave a quick opening five minute thing, you know, off the cuff. And then said, all right, let's, let, let's hear your questions. Now, I've been doing this a long time and, uh, uh, the, the, the questions have changed over time. They've changed. They've gotten stupider. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would think that the atheist, 
and the agnostic community would have honed their game. I mean, the entire atheist club was sitting in the front row right there with, with T-shirts on to identify themselves. And, and it was as if everybody in the room, including the atheist club, had, had gotten all of their theological knowledge from reading the Da Vinci Code, you know? It was really pathetic. I, I had to help these poor people ask better questions. Sir, that would actually be more troubling for me if you were to formulate it this way, you know. Then I hand it back to him. Then they ask me the question. And I go, oh, that's a hard one. Um, I'll have to think about that. Um, even, even more disturbing was about halfway or three-quarters of the way through this little event, um, the, the questions just dried up. And they're just sitting there staring at me. And I'm staring back at them. Now, understand that this is a... This is a college campus with young people who are exploring all kinds of interesting ideas like art history and, and, and sociology and, and, and thinking through ideas like, do I have a soul? Is there a God? Where did I come from? Where am I now? Where am I going? All these big questions. And here's a forum uh, specifically designed to really enhance this, kinds of, this kind of inquiry, and they're just sitting there. You know. So... Uh, I know the ground rules. They have to ask questions to earn the wings. So I'm like... And uh, I saw a guy out in the middle. He's, he's nudging his neighbor and, and mouthing like, ask the question. And the guy's like, okay. And he starts to raise his hand. Of course, I'm scanning for motion. And I see a guy, you know, guy moving. You! you know? He's like, whoa! Uh, so... Um, yeah. So do you, um, do you like believe in, uh, do you believe in baptism? Strange question. I said, sir, not only do I believe in it, I've seen it done. <laughs> and this, it was so funny because there was this beat, you know, and, and then the, the whole place just exploded into laughter. And because the, the, there was so much tension in the room. You know, it was like a big game of gotcha. How are we going to tie the Christian guy into a pretzel? How are we going to saw off his limbs? You know, we'll, we'll fix this guy good. But, but when they started laughing, you could just see the shields go down. And then we were actually having a decent conversation. They actually got to ask the questions they really wanted to ask for the last like 10 or 15 minutes. I wish we had longer because, you know, some rich questions started to come up. Things like, you know, so you're really a Christian and an academic? How does that work? You know? Uh, were you brought up in a Christian home or were you dropped on, uh, on your head as a child? You know, how, and so we just had, to, I got a, they, they were giving me little softballs hit out of the park for the gospel and it was really, really a great time. I wish we had more time like that, but the, the, the organizers finally released them to the wings. They'd done their duty. Oh, you should have seen these students then, you know, some of them were pretty holier than thou and sanctimonious and, uh, uh, but they released them for the wings. And there's people like in walkers heading for the wings and in, on canes. They're getting thrown aside by the healthy students who are going to get their big plate of wings. Um, oh, and I know that there were a lot of architecture majors or structural engineering majors in the group. And, and here's how I know that. They gave them little plates. But they were able to build towers of wings. <laughs> You know, with, with flying buttresses and drawbridges and the, the whole thing. It's crazy. Oh, it, as if this wasn't crazy enough, there's kind of an ending point to all this. 
Uh, I finished the talk. They're getting their wings. Mayhem is ensuing at the wing table. And somebody wanted to ask me a question right here. They're sitting on the front row. They didn't want to ask it during the forum. So I'm chatting right here with somebody. And uh, I notice out of the corner of my eye, because I've learned to use my peripheral vision on secular campuses. <laughs> you never know what's coming at you. Talking here, and I see a woman. She's, she's coming from the wing table. She has her little tower, and she's eating one, and she's coming at me, you know. <laughs> and so here she comes, and... And she, I'm leaning over here talking to someone. She leans over me and goes, hey, you know, hey, I look up and she's right there, you know, like, oh, uh, yes, yes, ma'am. What can I do? She's got a little schmutz on her face from the wings, you know. Uh, yeah, yes, ma'am. How can I help you? And she goes, well, here's my thing. You see, uh, uh, there, there really aren't enough women in the Bible. What a weird question, you know. So I'm thinking she's a plant from the drama department, you know. Somebody set her up to just mess with me. So, so I kind of humor her. I mess with her back. I'm like, oh, I totally know what you mean. She's like, yeah. I go, yeah. Like, uh, like the three wise men. Should have been the three wise women. She's like, yeah. <laughs> I go, that makes so much more sense. Because if it were three wise women, uh, they would have arrived on time. You know, because women ask for directions. And, and, and they would have helped clean the stable and deliver the baby. And, and they would have brought practical gifts, for goodness sake. They would have brought a, a baby blanket and a casserole, you know. And, and the lady goes, you know, you get it. You get it. So after experiences like that, here's the question. What in the world are we afraid of? Really, what in the world are we afraid of? Uh, my colleagues and I, we travel constantly, and, and we, we get to visit churches you know, across the country and beyond. And we have detected uh, pretty much a universal trait that, that uh, Jesus-loving, Bible-reading Christians uh, seem to be scared to death to share their faith or to live big for Jesus. You know why? Because they're terrified somebody's going to ask them one of those really hard questions that they, that they, forgot, to, they forgot to look up. You know, they forgot to read that Lee Strobel book, you know, or that Josh McDowell book. Oh, if only I'd read that. And so they're scared to death. And, and that's a tragedy because that ought not to be the case. It's not that hard to do. And once you learn a few answers and, and some good conversational technique, it just will take your witness for Christ. Uh, to, to new stratospheres. And, and you will be so much more confident and comfortable doing it. I mean, it's really glorious. Uh, it's just not that hard to stay ahead of your uh, skeptical friends. Uh, in fact, when, when I'm on the Biola campus and I'm, uh, you know, I run the apologetics program there, so I'm always pitching something. And I, sometimes I'm pitching our certificate program in apologetics, which is open to everybody. And so I'll say this on campus. I'll say... If you do our certificate program, you will rise to the top 5% of religiously literate people in the world. And people go, wow, that must be some certificate program you have there. Uh, well, the comment is not about the certificate program, really. The comment is about the incredibly low level of understanding out in the general public. With even a little bit of study, you can be, you know, five stages ahead of your atheist uncle, the physicist, or that guy at work who laughs because you got a Bible on your desk, the whole thing. And then you can take a deep breath and really engage them in the love of Christ and with some really good answers. It is possible to do. 
So uh, a big pitch really for apologetics in general. In case you're wondering what apologetics is, it's simply offering reasons for faith. Uh, Christianity doesn't require you to simply close your eyes and leap blindly into the religious abyss. It actually invites you to walk into it with your eyes wide open, asking hard questions the whole way because it can handle it. Praise God. It can handle it. Well, I want to address one question this morning. I wish I could address a whole lot more, but I think this one is, is fairly important. How does Christianity stack up against the other great world religious traditions? That's what I want to uh, get at. Uh, I, I did my doctoral work in, in religious studies at the uh, University of California in Santa Barbara, you know. And, uh, I mean, could you imagine me bouncing into a program like that, a Jesus-loving, Bible-reading Christian, you know? And it was a very hostile program uh, to the things that I hold most dear, but uh, I had a great time in that program. I, I could just regale you a story after story about how the Lord was with me and, and, and did some amazing things while I was there in grad school. Uh, I'll have to save that for another time. But I did get a chance to compare Christianity with all the other great world religious traditions, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and Mormonism, you name it. And I got a chance to, to, to do this comparison, and, and I discovered something about Christianity along the way. It's really weird. We signed up for a strange one we did. You know, in fact, if, if there's this box called religion, you know, and, and you try to drop Christianity into it, you know, it, it, it doesn't go in. You know. <clears throat> won't go in the box. You know, you can saw pieces off, push some more. It won't, won't go in the box. No. It's like a cat trying to drop, drop a cat in the box. And it won't go in the box. Uh, Christianity is really set apart in rather dramatic fashion from the other great world religious traditions and what people consider to be religion. And I want to highlight a few of those. Uh, something that will be helpful for you this morning is a piece of paper that you'll find in your worship folder this morning. Some notes that you can fill in and follow along. Uh, there's one thing that really stands out for me with regard to Christianity and its uniqueness among the world religions. And the first thing is, that, is this, that Christianity is testable. It's testable. You can, and what I mean by that is you can offer evidence for it, you can offer evidence against it, and the evidence actually means something. In other words, you can make decisions about whether to be a follower of Christ based on the evidence of the case. Strange, huh? Well, in fact, some of you might be thinking, that this, this, this might be a strange teaching. I wonder if it's biblical. Well, let me demonstrate this to you by, by reading to you what I consider to be one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. You don't find something like this in the Bhagavad Gita or the Buddhist Tripitaka or the Quran or the Book of Mormon. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, starting with verse 12. And I'll, I'll read this to you and see if you can figure out why I would call this one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. Here's what Paul writes. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Interesting. 
And he continues, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, empty, worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Why would I call that one of the strangest passages in all of religious literature? What was he thinking? Oh my goodness. Look, if you're going to go out and start your own religion, don't do it this way. The apostle, if you're going to start your own religion, design it such that all these spiritual knowledge resides inside of you, and then people pay you good money to get a little bit of it out, you know? That way there's no testing, there's no, no big claims that people can go check out or something like that. It's all taking place inside you. What the Apostle Paul did here is he opened the whole thing for objective verification. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, Christianity is bunk. Go do something else, for goodness sakes. That is radical. That's why this is the strangest passage in all of religious literature, in my opinion. That is really bizarre. What the Apostle Paul basically did was he, he hung Christianity by a thread. You know, the thread of the resurrection. And almost invited people to come and, and snip that thing, you know. But it turns out that thread is made out of some super titanium alloy that, that breaks any pair of scissors that gets near it. You know, and the Apostle Paul could say things like this because he had seen the risen Jesus himself and he knew all kinds of other people who did too. And he also trusted that God would leave a tremendous trail of evidence down through history testifying to this great work Christ did for our eternal life. So... Uh, Although it sounds a bit risky, it really wasn't on his behalf. This was the real deal. And Christianity is testable. You can investigate it and make decisions about it. There's some other things I want to highlight as to how Christianity stands apart from the other great religious traditions. Uh, I'm going to get at the other ones by by telling you uh, an extended story. And... uh, because it contains all the points. In fact, this, this story I'm going to tell you is really the, the, the germination of the story Five Sacred Crossings. They're really not the same story, but the ideas that I generated at this time at uh, a local community college ended up getting plopped down into Five Sacred Crossings. But here it is. So I get a call in my Biola office. It's, it's a local community college. I won't name names here, but they, they're having... Uh, a world religion survey course. They're getting towards the end of the term and they want various uh, representatives of the world religious traditions to come in and talk directly to the class. You know, kind of a up close and personal interaction. After they've learned so much, they want that kind of next step. All right. So they, they call Biola because they're looking for a fundamentalist. They, we should invite a fundamentalist to class. <laughs> you know, could you imagine? You know, where can we find one? Well, I don't know. Call Biola, you know. So they call Biola. I can just imagine how this happened. They call Biola and they get the operator there on the phone, you know. Uh, uh, Hello, I'm looking for a fundamentalist, you know. <laughs> and the operator goes, one moment, please. You know, and it comes to my office. There's, there's hundreds of faculty members, for goodness sakes, you know. So after I heard what was going on, it sounded like a lot of fun. I I wanted to go down and talk to this class. I was willing to give a little lecture on the American fundamentalist movement if they wanted that. That's fine. Um, 
So it was the next Wednesday at 8.30 in the morning. 8.30 in the morning. It's a college class. Nobody's going to be there by my calculation. It's college. It's 8.30, for goodness sakes. Turns out it's in a pretty big lecture hall because this is a very popular class among students. And the reason is a lot of them are in there like checking out the religions, you know? This is their way of like finding out what they're all about. Maybe, maybe their way of checking, out, checking them out to see if they can sign up for one. So I'm there, and, and students are shuffling in, and they're looking pretty bedraggled, you know, but they're, they're carrying giant cups of coffee, you know, and they're getting set up. And I meet the teaching assistant, and he says, uh, yeah, welcome, glad you're here. And I said, hey, is the professor here? I'd like to meet him. He goes, uh, yeah. And I go, well, where is he? He goes, um, he's over there. And I look down this long row of first tables and chairs, and he's at the very last one sitting uh, in the chair with his head down on the table, you know. And I go, oh, was he sick? And the guy goes, no. I heard later the backstory on this. During the end of the term, this professor turns his uh, course over to guest speakers. And since the class is covered, he, he goes out chasing girls and drinking most of the night. So he comes in with a hangover most of the last weeks of the term. So he's sitting down there just more. So when I see that, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I have free reign here. You know? <laughs> Yeah. By the way, when I heard all of your teaching pastors are in Israel, I thought the same thing about this place. You know? oh. Here we go. <laughs> so the students were uh, filling in the seats and they, they let me loose. And I just said, hey, students, I, I'd be happy to do uh, a lecture on the American fundamentalist movement if you'd like. But, but on the way down here, I was thinking of something else. You know, because I know a lot of you are in here like checking out these various religions. You're, you're seeing how Islam accelerates. You know, how, how Buddhism handles in the corners, you know. You're kicking the tires of these various religions thinking you might sign up for one. Well, here's the question. I mean, you're college students, so you're studying important things like organic chemistry and sociology and art history and accounting, and you're using your mind constantly. So how would a thoughtful person like you go about a religious quest? You know, that's the kind of thing I'd really like to talk about. Well, you can tell the Starbucks was kicking in because they're like, go? Who? You know, what did, what did he say? You know, yeah. Well, let's do that thing you're talking about, you know? I go, okay, that's what we'll do. <laughs> now, I have no idea where I'm going with this. I'm like, yeah, okay. So, okay, well, if, uh, if you're a thoughtful person and you're on a religious quest, it, it seems to me, because I've studied the religions, uh, that you'd obviously start that quest with Christianity. That's exactly how they looked. They're <laughs> like, then, then I met this guy. He's, he's a surfer guy. He's got long, stringy blonde hair. He's sitting right in, in the middle of the back of the room with, with, with two other surfer guys. Now, this, this blonde guy, he was smarter than he looked, you know. He ended up becoming my, my counterpoint for the whole morning I was with these people. Uh, so he had two guys sitting next to him, and, and, and they weren't smarter than they looked. Um, just the middle guy. In fact, this middle guy was so intriguing to me, he actually made it as a character into my book. If you ever read Five Sacred Crossings, his name is Darren. So uh, this is where I got the idea for Darren. I made up a backstory in the book for him. This is probably true, but anyway, that's beside the point. So here's, here's this guy in the back, and he goes, Hey, dude, I thought you, I thought you weren't going to give a lecture on fundamentalism. And then the first thing you do is say, you got to start your religious whatever with my religion because it's best. You know, what's that about? I go, oh, no, no, I think you're getting me wrong here. I mean, there's, there's really some good reasons that a thoughtful person on a religious quest would, would obviously start that quest with Christianity. 
And they're like, well, what do you got? I go, well, well look, let me, let me give you five reasons why a thoughtful person on a religious quest would start that quest with Christianity. By the way, I had no idea if I had five reasons, you know. I think I maybe had two, you know. But I was hoping God would show up and give me some insight. Uh, and he did, by the way. Uh, so, I said, well, the, the first reason, and I think you'll like this one, class, the first reason that a thoughtful person on a religious quest would start that quest with Christianity is that Christianity is testable. It's testable. You can offer evidence for it. You can offer evidence against it. And the evidence actually means something. And I read to them that passage from 1 Corinthians that I read to you. So I told them, that, look, you, you can actually study this and make decisions about it in a finite amount of time. It might take you seven days, uh, seven years, 70 years. Who knows how thorough you want to be. But you can investigate the case and make decisions about it. You can't do that with the other world religions. You know? So that sets Christianity apart. And for thoughtful people, that seems to make a lot of sense. So... Uh, they're like, all right, well, uh, that seems all right. What else you got? All right, well, the second reason, the second reason that a thoughtful person on a religious quest would start that quest with Christianity is that salvation in Christianity is a free gift from God. It's a free gift from God. Th- this is so important. We don't make enough of this, by the way, brothers and sisters. This, this is a very important point. I mean, here, God is just giving you salvation. There's, there's no crawling over jagged rocks for miles to, to lay some offering in some temple. There's no sitting in arthritic lotus positions, you know, for hours on end in hope of creeping closer to enlightenment or something like that. No, God, God just gives it to you. He, he wants nothing more than to reconcile with you and, and, and fulfill you for all eternity. It's just mind-boggling how wonderful this gift is. And so I don't know that we make enough about that. And I read to them that famous verse in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one should boast. And these were college students, so they, they understood the concept of free. You know? So they were, they were with me on this one. They were always looking for a free haircut or a free music download or a free sandwich or something. So they were, they were kind of with me on that. And I, um, old uh, surfer guy asked me, well, isn't, uh, you know, aren't, I'm sure this, this grace idea pops up in another religion. I said, actually, it doesn't. Certainly not in the way it does in Christianity. I, I, I've actually done some study on this, and there's a thin slice of Buddhism that has a concept of grace, and there's a very thin slice of Hinduism where you can find such a thing. But even those thin slices don't measure up to what Christianity is talking about. And not just in Ephesians chapter 2, but the, but the way it's set forth in the New Testament. Like in the parable of the prodigal son, you're not going to get a picture like this anywhere else. Uh, you know the story, don't you? There's a... There's a Near Eastern patriarch, you know, a man who owns much land and is over many people and has a large family. And one of his sons comes to the father and says, give me my stuff, you know, I'm out of here. It's kind of like flipping off his dad and the family, you know, and his dad gives him his inheritance and this guy tromps off to a faraway place and squanders it very quickly on crazy living, you know. You name it, he did it and he blew big wads of cash doing it. And it turns out this son, he, he's just, he's bankrupt. He's got, he doesn't have a cent. He can't buy food. In fact, he can't even get at the slop that the pigs are eating. And so the text says he comes to his senses, you know, 
And, and, he, and he takes that long walk home down the dusty road, you know. Oh, what am I going to do? Maybe, maybe Dad will let me, you know, work the fence on the North 40 or something. But, man, anything's better than starving to death in this dreadful place I'm at. So he's walking down the dusty road. He's getting near home. And the father's sitting out on the porch, and he sees a speck of dust, a little cloud down the road. And as the cloud gets a little closer, he leans in, and he sees it's his son. Now, don't forget, this is a a Near Eastern patriarch, a very stately man over much land and much family and much wealth. What does he do? He leaps off the porch and he runs to this son of his. And he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. He puts a gold ring on his finger. He gives him fresh sandals, puts a cloak on him and says, kill the fatted calf. We are feasting tonight. My son was lost and now he is found. That is a picture of the love and grace of God that you will not find in any religion on the planet today or through human history. That is unique to Christianity. And in my view, it catapults Christianity apart from the pack in terms of the great world religious traditions. In Christianity, you get this wonderful salvation as a free gift. And that is something that ought to intrigue any religious seeker. The third reason that a thoughtful person on a religious quest would start that quest with Christianity is that in Christianity, you get an amazing worldview fit. An amazing worldview fit. What I mean by that is Christianity paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. Paints a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. I remember saying that and uh, skateboard guy, gave me a little trouble with this. He said, um, look, uh, you know, I'm sure you believe that, but uh, how are you going to demonstrate that? You're basically saying all the facts of the universe line up with my religion, you know. That's a pretty big claim. I just don't think we have enough time for you even to scratch the surface. I said, that's a very good point. I run a master's degree in apologetics, so we barely have time to scratch the surface on this particular question. But, but let me give you one very... Uh, a tight example of this. And, and it comes from dealing with the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. Uh, how does Christianity deal with evil, pain, and suffering? And how do the Eastern religious traditions, say, deal with it? Well, in the Eastern religious traditions, like Hinduism and Buddhism and some of the others, by and large, the way that evil, pain, and suffering are dealt with is that you, you kind of stare them down and you call them maya, a Sanskrit term for illusion. And what you want to do is assimilate deeply the idea that evil, pain, and suffering are not real, that they're illusory. And as you come to that realization, evil, pain, and suffering will evaporate and leave your life. All right? Sounds pretty good. It's kind of Oprah's way of handling evil, pain, and suffering. Really, that's, that's how she did. Um, now, I said, I said to the class, I go, is that painting a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is? And I said, let me give you an example of how that doesn't work. Say, uh, say the, doors, the doors open in the back of the lecture hall and in walks an elderly woman. She's got a shock of gray hair. She's got a cane. And she makes her way down the steps in the classroom and she sits here in the front row. Well, we don't get you know, like classroom invasions by elderly women very often. So we, <laughs> we pause for a moment and say, Madam, what's your story? And she doesn't hesitate for a second. She stands up, turns to the class, and in a thick Polish accent tells this gripping tale of the Holocaust when she was just a very young girl in a Polish village 
her family was Jewish, the whole village was Jewish, and Nazi troops come in and start rounding people up one day and stuffing them like animals into boxcars. They were stuffed so tightly that people died and passed out on the way to a camp of concentration where they opened the doors and people were falling out. And and this little girl was fortunate enough to be shoved over into a work site of the camp. And uh, the rest were herded into a big compound where the gas ovens were just running day and night. This girl had no idea what was going on. She's just a teeny little thing. Not long after that, though, Russian troops come in. It's toward the end of the war, and they liberate the camp. And here's this girl standing there, nearly starved to death, wearing rags, not having a family member or a, a, a village member left on the planet. But somehow she is able to pick herself up and march down uh, through the decades, and here she stands before us today. What are you going to tell her, class? What are you going to tell her? Are you going to say to her... Cheer up, lady, you know, turn that frown upside down, you know. Just think happy thoughts and the world will be your oyster. Is that what you're going to say to her? No, for goodness sakes, because this woman really suffered. In Christianity, we don't try to call suffering and pain illusion and brush it off the table. We know it's real. Our great calling as Christians is to get down into the trenches where people are experiencing pain and suffering and bear them up the best we can in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we worship a Savior who himself suffered dramatically and knows that kind of uh, situation. It doesn't end there, though. We also worship a God who... Uh, has promised one day to wipe away every tear and to correct every instance of injustice. Now, that's a robust way to handle evil, pain, and suffering. It's painting a picture of the world that matches the way the world really is. Um, I'm going to skip number four. Your number four is actually my original number five. Number four, the last point in this, the last reason that a thoughtful person on a religious quest would start that quest with Christianity is, uh, well, let me give you a little setup for this. Um, it was towards the end of the time in, my, in that uh, class on that uh, college campus. Uh, the students were starting to pack up their stuff. There was a professor waiting at the door with a window in it, and he's looking through his glasses down his nose, pointing at his watch, you know. So I'm getting the picture. I got to get out of here, man. They... they you know, everybody's going to leave. So it's like, well, now wait a minute. There's one more point I want to make. Um, so just hang in there. Uh, the, the last reason that a thoughtful person on a religious quest would start that quest with Christianity is that Christianity has Jesus at the center. There's this pause like that. And skateboard guy throws a fit. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe that. You wait until the last minute. The pressure's on. We all got to get out of here. And you play the Jesus card. This was a lecture on fundamentalism afterward. After all, oh, my goodness, we should have seen this coming. And he's just ranting. And I go, wait. You know, what in the world have you people been learning in here? The guy's still got his head down, so I'm all right. What, what have you been learning in here? For goodness sakes. Uh, don't you know that Jesus is the universal religious figure? I mean, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants to grab onto him and co-opt him for their system, you know? Uh, so it makes a lot of sense if you're on a religious quest to start with Christianity that has him f- firmly planted at the center. I mean, Buddhism, for instance. Many Buddhists believe that Jesus might very well be a reincarnation of the Buddha himself. If not that, he's certainly a great bodhisattva, person who brings other people to enlightenment. Uh, In Hinduism, some Hindus believe that Jesus 
is certainly an incarnation of the god Vishnu, you know, an avatar of some sort, or at least the greatest religious teacher of all time, certainly among the greatest. Islam, in Islam, for goodness sake, Jesus emerges as a figure greater than Muhammad himself. In Islamic tradition, it's clear and obvious that Muhammad is considered a prophet, but so is Jesus. But in addition, Jesus is considered a legitimate miracle worker, a person who is born of a virgin and will stand with Allah at the scales of judgment at the end of time. Not sure of the exact final score, but it's something like Muhammad won Jesus for, you know. The point is everybody wants a piece of Jesus. And so it makes perfect sense if you're a thoughtful person on a religious quest to start that quest with the religion that has always had him firmly planted at the center. I remember just getting that out. I, uh, class was, a new class was like flowing into the room. Everybody was packing up their stuff. I just grabbed my stuff off the lectern and I just kept walking, you know. I, I walked out of the room and just kept walking until I got to some picnic tables and I just dropped my stuff, you know. And uh, I, I started to notice a group of students had followed me out and were beginning to form a circle around me, you know. Uh, fortunately, uh, they were throwing sharp questions my way rather than sharp objects. So it turned out to be good. We, we uh, drank coffee. We ate lunch. I know it went into the afternoon hours, and we were still bantering and answering questions and discussing things back and forth. It was tremendous. They had never heard anything like this. It was just some wonderful opportunities to share the gospel with them and how Jesus has changed my life. It's not just all theoretical and, and Jesus is the best in some game. It's real and he is the Savior and he has the power to transform us. Got a chance to present that to them and uh, it was just an awesome time with those students. And really gave them the picture that we as Christians are in possession of the great story of all that ever was is or will be. And we have a great responsibility to to learn how to share it effectively with people. And that requires learning to answer some of their toughest questions. So don't hesitate to jump in and do that. Our Heavenly Father, our great King, what a joy it is to serve you. What a joy it is to know that you didn't leave us stranded in our time, but you left us a tremendous trail of evidence back through history testifying to the great works you did on our behalf to provide us with eternal life a fulfilled eternal life, uh, living with you for all eternity. Father, we're so grateful. Help us to uh, hear that calling and step up to the plate and be bold witnesses in these final days. In Jesus' name, amen.